This is Jacob Ross with JLB Morelia. This is Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. And you're listening to the Herpeticulture Podcast. Enjoy. Carpet Fest auctions are going. Yeah, Carpet Fest well. auctions are going. Carpet Fest is almost here. Um, so if you haven't heard about it, get with the program and be there, be square, um, all that good jazz. Make sure to check out all the auction items and bid on some stuff. There all is, the money goes to a good good uh, cause. So. There's a JLB Morelia shirt up for auction. Yeah, there is. There's a Chondrica shirt up for yeah. auction. There's and a, a THP shirt, uh, 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 shirt open for I, I, auction. <laughs> and there's a Herpeticulture magazine shirt up for auction. Oh, buddy. Shirts on shirts on shirts, everybody. And on top of other cool stuff, we got, there's even some live animals. We snuck some live... We're living dangerously with this, Uh-oh. dude. Like they, are they on Facebook? Facebook could literally at any point shut the whole thing down did the website is the website up yet kind of kind of it works there's just some bugs some bugs that need to be worked out but literally this could all disappear and then we'd all have to restart but you're walking on a dangerous a, line me and ian talked about it the i zuck. said let's go for it we'll have the, the zuck uh, is watching we'll have the the site hopefully ready to go as a backup in case yeah and we i guess we can just start the bids off at whatever they left off at on facebook if we have any way of looking but yeah that's uh, uh we're yeah we're playing with fire on this one yeah. but i kind of like it <laughs> living on dangerously the uh we're already up to something crazy like what what do you say like eight grand or something it? like that I it was eight or ten something like yeah. that so we're doing good we're like half almost halfway at what we were last year already so there's still plenty of time yep. to go do it. The auctions don't end until February 8th at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Are we doing? We're not doing a live auction, are we? <laughs> there's going to be a few. There are a few items live auction. I guess. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to do the same thing we did last year, where you, they finish them up live. Yeah. Um, but are we going to do all the items well, again? Because last year it took forever. Day. Yeah, I was like, it's 200 plus. We have more items than we did last year. Like we're up to like 215, I think. Good God. It's like. We really gonna go through all these yeah there's that's a little excessive um but we'll see i mean there should be a few where it's like okay these are online only yeah like these we'll do live you know maybe some of like the live animals and stuff and higher yeah. end items do those as like the live auction <clears throat> All the kind of the smaller stuff like shirts and whatnot. Online. Yeah, leave them online. Speaking of shirts, when uh, when do you think we can get? Oh. oh, when do you think we can get JLB Morelli shirts on the website? When you tell me you want them on it. Whenever you got time, <laughs> man. I know you're a busy man, so I'm not <clears throat> I'm not trying to push. I put up a. Herpeticulture Magazine hoodie on there yesterday for Phil because Phil wanted one before Carpet Fest. So those are up there if anyone's interested. They're about 40 bucks. But same style that we got the THP ones in, yeah. which are very soft. I was actually really impressed with the print quality on those. Oh, those yeah. came out what nice. Um, but yeah, I'll get them up there and we mm-hmm. will make the announcement. Cool. Make it happen. Or we can set up your own like little storefront. I don't know because like, after you hit a certain amount, you have to file it with your taxes. So we're past that point. So Oh, we're past that? Yeah. 
or past having to file? No, I'm gonna have to. Like they're gonna send me like a 1099. Oh, for real? Yeah. Damn. Okay. So, I don't know. Because then if you sell a bunch of shirts and then I have to pay the taxes on it, then well, I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't do that to you. We'll but... have to figure something. out. <laughs> I don't know how to circumnavigate that. But... Yeah. Uh, welcome everybody. This is episode 66. The Herpeticulture Podcast. I'm Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. And I am Jacob Bratz of JLB Morelia. And we're joined by <laughs> Dr. Steve uh, Steve Tillis and Dr. Rob Osaboff um, to get a NIDO update. It's almost a year since we had Southeast Carpet Fest. Yes, and uh, at which we had a an, a live update from uh, Steve and who I don't remember who was all in the panel. It was P and was Cody, P and Cody, Doctor Osipoff, okay. Steve, and what was the other doctor's name? Uh, Jim Wellahan, I believe, That's was there right. as well. Yes, it okay. was. Yeah. Yep. So, um. I guess before we kind of get into the actual updates and stuff, can you give us a little background about yourselves? Uh, we had the panel. I recorded it on video. It's uploaded as a YouTube video in case anyone's curious. It's on the, I think, my Palmetto Coast channel. It's not on the THP channel. Okay. Um, but it's there if anyone wants to watch it. Lots of information, good information. Uh, but let's jump into it. I mean, I don't know who wants to go first. Um, I guess we could start with Dr. Oz. Sure. Um, my name is Rob Osbuff. Um, everyone uh, who knows me calls me Oz. Um, I'm a veterinary pathologist and virologist. Um, and so I work at the University of Florida with the Aquatic Amphibian and Reptile Pathology Service um, that we started up a few years ago um, so that I could focus more on amphibian and reptile disease, which is my particular area of interest and expertise. And then I also work with the Zoom Medicine Diagnostic Lab here at University of Florida, which offers PCR molecular testing for um, diseases of uh, a wide variety of wildlife and exotic species, but with a particular focus on uh, reptiles and amphibians. Um, and I have been working with um, I have been working with nidoviruses, or what now are more appropriately termed serpentoviruses. Um, since they were discovered, so uh, I started working with the large collection in New York um, back in about 2009, 2010, um, when they were starting to experience outbreaks of respiratory disease um, and worked them through and was one of the groups that characterized what we now know as ball python serpentovirus. Um, and I've continued on with doing research into serpentoviruses as well as other, other viruses of reptiles since then. Hmm. Uh, so, okay, Steve? <clears throat> sure, yeah. Um, so, uh, my name's Stephen Tillis. Uh, so, currently I'm a PhD student studying under uh, Dr. Oz, um, working predominantly on, on snake pathogens, but uh, really kind of honed in on the, uh, the nidoviruses or serpentoviruses um, is what I'm predominantly working on at this point. Um, prior to this, uh, so my undergrad was in wildlife ecology and conservation, so kind of starting from a, a wildlife background, and, and so a lot of uh, the focus on some of the research has to do with uh, kind of tying that into to both wild and captive populations. And then um, also part of this, a lot of people might know me, uh, I was uh, uh, breeding snakes for a long time, um, worked for Eugene Bissette for oh, seven or eight years, um, and then also ran my own company, uh, Reptilus Herbs, which uh, I'm sure a lot of people will recognize them from 
Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely where I, I first heard your name many, many moons ago, uh, personally. <laughs> well, he's got those locality ball pythons in the auction right now that I'm like, I hate to admit that I'm like really <laughs> tempted to to throw my hat in the ring on yeah. those, but it's like I really don't they, need. They are the coolest normal ball pythons you will ever uh, see. Well, yeah, there. there's a I, picture. I don't. I, I don't think huge. I. I don't think I saw this. Uh, this is in, in the auction. Yeah. No way. Yeah. Oh man, that's. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. At some point, there's a big backstory behind them that that I'll make sure it gets posted up along with them to to kind of. Yeah, I have that on the sheet. I can post really it. Are. I just haven't gotten around to doing it yet. Perfect. Yeah. But yeah, man, that's that's awesome. Cool. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, oh, is Katie trying to call me? It's oh. like, um, so going back to uh, Doctor Oz, um, what exactly when when this first kind of showed up, was it a case of like? One animal was showing symptoms, and then you heard of other animals showing similar symptoms, and kind of started deciding to investigate more. Like, what was the? How did you first um, get into the the sort of the investigation of the whole thing? So there was. Um, I went to. I did my most of my veterinary training and my grad training and everything um, in upstate New York uh, at Cornell, and there was a uh, large collection of predominantly ball pythons um, that was. Um, that was in the area, um, and uh, that collection typically would employ vet students to help with the care of those animals. Um, so it was long, it was a large enough collection that they needed multiple people to help um, in, in maintaining it. And so um, I was uh, friends with a couple of the, you know, reptile-focused vet students um, who were a few years behind me in training, um, and uh, they were explaining to me that they were having some odd mortalities in snakes um, that just didn't seem to fit with, with what we normally knew um, and they wanted some help with in doing some investigation. Um, and initially the snakes that were presenting in the collection with, with respiratory disease were Stimson's pythons. Um, and then soon after uh, it started, they started to see respiratory disease in their ball pythons. Um, and so uh, I touched base with them and we started necropsying um, animals, you know, just to try and get an idea of what some of the, what was actually going on. Um, and in the veterinary literature and the veterinary realm, um, there's a lot of old information that talks about, you know, ball pythons and, and pythons in general being exquisitely sensitive to bacterial stomatitis. Um, and these animals did have lesions that looked like a bacterial stomatitis, but there was a lot more going on on top of that. They had inflammation that affected their nose, their nasal cavity, inflammation that extended into their trachea, and then they had really, really severe pneumonia. Uh, and the pneumonia didn't look like anything that of the other viruses that we commonly know to affect snakes, which are primarily the paramyxoviruses and the rheoviruses. Um, and so we worked those cases up. I mean, it was you know, cases would come in one every few weeks or every couple of months over a couple of years. And we started just building this bank of cases and tissue that was frozen back. And we tested for everything that we knew was out there and we could not find anything in them. Um, we did lots of bacterial cultures and we found lots of opportunistic bacteria, but nothing that was really a smoking gun. Um, and so it really took a collaboration with, um, at, so I did most of my training at Upstate New York, but then uh, did the last year of my residency and a little more training at the Bronx Zoo. Uh, and while I was at the Bronx Zoo, 
I was put in touch with a professor at uh, Columbia University who is doing next generation sequencing, which is a way that you can really just screen for anything, viruses, bacteria, fungi, anything that you want, and not have to know what you're looking for. And all the other modalities, you really have to know what you're looking for to test the animals. Um, and this was, again, this was about eight, nine years ago. Um, and at that time, next generation sequencing still was expensive and hard to come by. Um, and he helped us out with it. And um, that's when we identified that it was a, a novel virus. Um, and then that, that virus was also found by a group who was doing work, um, including some people here at the University of Florida, as well as people at University of California, San Diego. I mean, I'm sorry, San Francisco. But I mean, this this has been a, this, like this virus isn't anything new, right? This has been around a long time. Well, that's a that's a really good question, um, and one that I would say that we don't know the answer to. Um, I would say that I suspect historically a lot of these bacterial bacterial infections in the mouth, particularly of ball pythons, were actually viral infections that were being missed. Um, in green tree pythons, it probably goes back to the mid 2000s, maybe 2004, 2005, some of the, or the earlier cases. Um, as for how far back we can take these viruses in the private hobby in North America, we don't have that data. I mean, we have lots of anecdotal reports of people with, you know, with snakes suffering from respiratory viruses, but um, you know, there are other viruses that can cause respiratory disease, and in a lot of those cases, this was identified in them. Um, so when the viruses, and again, we're not talking about a single virus, we're talking about a, a significant number of viruses, when they made their way into the private hobby isn't clear. My guess is that they've been around for a long time and that they've been moving between species and mixed collections. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, in terms of, like, viruses and sort of their time on this planet, like, this isn't anything new necessarily because it's it's – Similar to like coronaviruses, right? Well, so they they are they are related to coronaviruses, and no, I I don't think these viruses are. Well, no, that's that's a that's a tough question. No virus is ever really new, right? We don't have new viruses just showing up every right. single day. That would be like new species of of snakes just showing mm -hmm. up. Um, over time, there is evolution of viruses. What we call new viruses is essentially mm -hmm. when you have a virus that is maintained in a host where it doesn't cause clinical disease and either something happens in that virus to make it change and then it's an important cause of clinical disease or that virus spills over into another closely related host. Um, and so my strong suspicion, and I think that something we'll be able to show over time, is that a lot of these viruses actually started out in individual snake species, um, and we can find that now. If we go looking for some of these viruses in free-ranging snakes, sometimes we can find them. And they're probably not causing a whole bunch of disease in those free-ranging snakes. Um, if the snake gets a little bit stressed and the temperatures are colder um, for a period of time, they may start to experience some clinical signs, but on the part, these are not viruses that are going to kill their host. That's usually not what viruses evolved to do right, in their natural host. Kind of counterintuitive to why they're there. Right. Exactly. But <laughs> what we've and and what we've experienced multiple times now in veterinary medicine and it's particularly true in wildlife and exotic animals is that what you have is spillover events of a pathogen that is highly adapted for one host 
into another closely related species um, that it can cause significant disease in. And that's essentially what happened with chytrid fungus and the amphibian populations being wiped out in the late 90s and early 2000s is there was a fungus that originated on the Korean Peninsula in around 1950 or so, it's believed, then it was moved around the world. And as it moved around the world, it started killing frog populations everywhere. So we suspect that these viruses probably have, you know, ball python nidoviruses named such because it causes clinical disease in ball pythons as well as a number of other python species. We don't know what the original host species for that virus is, but somewhere out there, there's a, there's a virus, there's a natural host for that virus um, that it doesn't really cause significant disease. But when that natural, that host and that virus was then, that virus was exposed to another species that was probably closely related, it could infect, that's when you sort of uncouple that evolution of host pathogen relationship and then the virus causes a lot more problems. So, I mean, it's stress like the threshold though. So you can have snakes in the wild and I'm sure Steve can chime in on this since that's what he's been looking at. Uh, it's like it's stress the threshold of where that, you know, a virus will then cause symptoms or signs of, of infection or is it, like, what is it that separates animals in the wild that have it and don't have it, does have any issues from captive animals that maybe seem fine for a while and then for whatever reason just fall off the, the deep end of sorts? Yeah, I think it's so really... Uh, so you kind of have two factors at play, and, and it's, it's sort of like both the species itself and the virus within that. So again, the, the biggest thing to remember is that these are, Nidovirus or serpentivirus is not one virus. It's, it's, it's many viruses. So saying that, you know, something is positive for uh, a nidovirus is about as helpful as saying that something is, you know, positive is a reptile. Like it doesn't necessarily get down into the specifics of what specific virus is affecting which specific animals. So what's probably at play is not only the individual virus itself, but also the species and situation that it's in. Gotcha. Uh, so what what triggered or caused the uh, the official name change? So the name change. Uh, so this is this is kind of a weird thing with um, with viruses or bacteria or whatever. <clears throat> um, there are official taxonomic, and the same thing is actually true for reptile species. There are official taxonomic groups that determine who names what. Um, and uh, outside of the people that are actually doing the research into this particular group of viruses, there was another group of scientists that came about and um, tried to reclassify all of the viruses in the much larger group that contains ball python nidoviruses and the related viruses. And in doing so, they subclassified them as other names. Um, and that was submitted to the official panel of people that says yes or no on that, and it was accepted. Um, so as of right now, ball python nidovirus is a serpentovirus, um, as is green tree python nidovirus, and a lot of the other viruses that we find causing disease commonly in captive python populations. Um, there are a number of other viruses out there that we know of um, that are in other species that um, can be associated with disease in other species as well. Um, and I, 
ultimately there's going to be a have to be a lot of reclassification of names once every all the information gets out there but for right now the official accepted name is serpentovirus which is really what stands for all of the the major viruses that we're seeing in the captive python species which is actually a really stupid name because it's not the only virus that snakes get so i don't know whoever decided to call them snake viruses or serpentoviruses mm-hmm. um but that's that's what's accepted by the scientific communities. That's kind of what we have to operate under for the time being. Gotcha. Hmm. And it, now, as far as like the chondro variety versus the ball python variety, what are sort of the major differences between those those strains? So there's um, when we identify strains or species of virus, what we do is we look at the genetic signature of the viruses. So the nucleotides that the viruses um, are made up of. And every virus essentially, um, there's some variation, every virus consists of a genome of nucleic acid, whether it be RNA or DNA, and serpentoviruses are an RNA virus. Um, Small amounts of proteins um, that are associated with that genome, and then a protein shell that is surrounded in some viruses, which includes serpentoviruses, by a layer of lipid or fat, a fatty layer membrane around the actual virus particle. Um, And so what we do is to categorize them, we analyze the genome of the viruses and we compare the sequence or the coding of critical proteins. Um, So proteins that these viruses cannot function without and any major changes to that protein um, would really have to be functional um, because if it's not, then that virus dies. Certain viruses have a much higher rate of mutation than other viruses, and RNA viruses, which are what serpentoviruses are, have some of the highest rates of mutation because when they're amplifying their genome, they never go through and proofread what the genome is that they're making. Um, and so that means that these viruses can mutate quite a bit over time. So we need to find a super highly conserved region of the genome, which is usually the critical proteins for viral function, um, to compare between them. And when we do that comparison, there's a certain threshold of difference where we will accept to say that's enough difference to be between different strains of a single virus or that's a really substantial different code than what's present in this other virus. So it likely represents a different virus species. As we continue to do more experiments, um, we'll be able to characterize that a little bit better because we'll be able to then in the lab determine, okay, if we have this green tree python nido, is it able to infect the same cell lines that a ball python nido is? And there may be differences there. There may be differences in the rate at which these viruses grow. There may be differences at the susceptibility of these viruses um, to conditions over time. That's all additional work that's coming in the future. Right now, we're basing that difference primarily just on coding differences in the genome. Which between all python nido and green tree python nido there there is enough of a distinction there to call those fully separated fleshed out species in other words it's not that all python is a it came from a green tree python nido in the context of someone's collection or anything like that i got you okay but how long does it take for i mean if they're if they're a quickly mutating virus like how long 
would you ex- what does it take to really start seeing a difference because i know with people you know uh <clears throat> flu is constantly sort of evolving in a sense and uh so i mean what is the sort of the rate of mutation on some of these so that varies that's a that's a a really complicated question. It's painting, um, painting with that, a broad stroke. <laughs> <laughs> that varies a lot by the individual viruses. Flu is a unique situation because, um, so for the serpentoviruses, their genome is just one piece of nucleic acid. Flu is actually eight different pieces of nucleic acids. So flu can swap whole pieces of their genome with other flu varieties. So they can mutate, and they mutate in a very different way. Um, with viruses that have um, just a single-strand genome, which is what we have with serpentoviruses, you know, there are viruses such as um, polio, which is a, it's not, I mean, it's a single-strand RNA virus. Poliovirus is nothing like serpentovirus. But in terms of viral replication, it's similar enough. Every, so a poliovirus, when it infects a cell, produces about one times 10 to the fifth viral particles. So if you have one cell infected by one virus, that virus will produce somewhere on the order of 100,000 to 1 million viral particles from one infected cell. Poliovirus in that scenario effectively mutates every single position of its genome in one round of replication. And so a lot of those mutations are fatal. The virus can never never actually develop. So you lose a lot of those particles. They're not infectious. Um, but the potential for mutation is is quite high. Um, but there's always restrictions on that in that, you know, the virus, if it mutates too much, the virus might not bind to the cells it's supposed to bind to anymore. And then that's a dead end thing. Right. And there's a lot, there's a lot of variations in that. But there's, there's a very, we don't know specifically Serpento what the rate of mutation is. Um, that's something that we hope to maybe look at someday in terms of growing a virus in the lab and then sequencing the entire genome of the virus after so many passages to see at what rate viruses um, mutations are actually occurring. But it's 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 a very it's a very complicated question, and that's kind of the the simplest way that I can boil it down. Yeah, I mean, I get when you're talking about multiple species and then multiple strange. I'm sure there's there's no sort yeah, of one size fits all answer for any so of it. many different possibilities <laughs> with something like that. But I don't know. I've always been like in into virology and and stuff like that. So that stuff's just fascinating to me. I, I don't mm. know if y'all did y'all read David Quammen's book Spillover. I have not. No. Oh man, it's so good. No, I haven't. He talks about uh, just various sort of spillover events with like Hendra and SARS and Ebola. And, yeah. Very good. It's a very good book. One of my favorites. And it's- yeah, that was. Um, <laughs> so the other group that was working. So when we characterized ball python nidovirus, we were doing our project, and then there was people here at UF, um, Dr. Elliot Jacobson, Jim Wellahan, then working with people at University of California, San Francisco, um, Dr. Darisi, um, and Mark Stengeline. Um, and when they first. So one of the ways that you can look at a virus is by doing electron microscopy and, and looking at virus particles. That's really the only way you can see them. Um, when they saw the first structures of ball python nidovirus, there was a bit of concern because ball python nido can actually look a lot like some of the really nasty viruses that humans can get. It's very different. It's not related to it, but it, it can have a gross appearance that is um, 
is very concerning. So they were concerned for a short amount of time that potentially this could have zoonotic implications, but we know that that's right now not the case. Now, how does how does Nido or Serpento compare to like Paramixo? Um, they're very close. The um, they are both then in terms of the actual virus itself. They're both RNA viruses. Um, they're both enveloped viruses, so they're the ones that contain that lipid envelope. Um, Paramixo viruses, they're so in a single strand genome of RNA, there's two orientations that it can be. It can be a positive orientation or a negative orientation. Paramixo viruses are a negative orientation genome, um, mm-hmm. and serpentos are a positive orientation genome. Gotcha. Uh, so what, as far as since Carpet Fest last year, is there any new major developments that, that you found uh, since the panel you all did and uh, what's been going on since then? So Steve has been, and I'll let him talk about the details on this. The, one of the major major things we have to do first before we can make the next steps, which we are right now, we're at that point. It, it took longer than we expected. Is We have to find a way to grow the virus in the lab and while doing so, determine how many infectious particles are present in there. You need to know the infectious titer of a virus um, before you can then look into anything about the virus in terms of the questions, the fundamental questions that we want to try and ask. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sounds trivial, but it's not. Uh, and so Steve can tell you a little bit about the months that he has spent working on it. And before Steve, there was a vet student who spent even more months working on trying to get an assay going. Yeah, so one of the major limitations, just, just before you can even think about starting stuff like this, is that, um, there's not a whole lot of reptile cell lines available, period. Um, so I think, I'm not sure what it, how it extends to other reptiles, but at least in terms of snakes, there's only really one commercially available cell line, um, which is from a, a Russell cipher. And so um, some of Dr. Ross's prior work has been establishing many different cell lines from, from really a variety of reptiles, as well as uh, a variety of snakes in particular. So to even get to the point where we could contemplate starting to grow some virus, we need something to grow it in. And so before there's any sort of experimentation anywhere, there's the development of a cell line, which takes, you know, at the very least months and months and months of work to take, to take a cell or to take a, a, a tissues from an animal and then get that to grow uh, consistently over multiple generations. Um, so again, before you can do any sort of experimentation on anything, you have to establish all these uh, cell lines. And so um, we're lucky to, to be able to have a, a pretty extensive range of reptile cell lines available for us so we can start doing some of this uh, experimentation. So so to start off the bat, you need your cell line. Um, and then what we're trying to set up is an assay to determine, you know, at which concentration of virus so we're trying to see uh, which concentration of virus we can see effects on the cells. So the other thing we then need to do is to develop the actual assay to be able to do that. Um, so normally cells are grown in flasks and then we transfer them over to small little kind of plates with wells on them. Um, and so then there's a lot of experimentation to figure out, okay, what concentration of cells will be able to grow a nice 
clean uh, monolayer of cells so we can actually start recording some of the effects of these viruses. And then on top of that, you have all your different types of viruses. So uh, you know, green tree python nidovirus and ball python nidovirus and antiregion python nidovirus. And, and you can start um, growing those up in stock and flasks and then uh, diluting those out to put on the wells and determine which concentrations uh, can you start seeing visual signs that the virus is affecting the cells. And then from that, you can kind of do some experimental manipulations like, okay, what happens if we take this uh, dilution of virus and freeze-thaw it four or five times? Does it still affect at the same concentration? Or what if we leave it out on the table for you know a week and then does it uh, still have that, that effect? And um, you know, what if we change the cell line? Does it, does it affect uh, colubrid cells in the same way that it affects python cells or uh, really kind of in the any different combination thereof of, of different viruses with different cells and different experimental manipulations you can do to that. So right now uh, what we've been able to get up to is uh, developing the actual assay itself to be able to start to do this experimentation which again in and of itself between figuring out all the different concentrations and ideal setup to make the cells grow and all that jazz. It, it, it takes a fair bit of time to set up those experimentations and those assays to be able to even start to answer some of these questions. But uh, thankfully we're, we're at this point, at that point where, where we can um, start looking at some of those. And the, the, the money raised from um, Southeast Carpet Fest was um, where, I mean, Steve and I are the two on this call, but that money was distributed to four different labs doing research. Um, and so one lab was Mark Stenglein's lab at Colorado State University, um, and we collaborate them. Steve and I both collaborate with them, and um, we did, as a group, publish a paper that came out in the fall of last year um, that really is, is one of the larger in-depth looks at the variety of um, viruses that are out there um, and starting to identify the susceptible species and what these viruses may do in a collection. Um, and then... <clears throat> um, Money was also is, was allocated to Justin Julander at Utah State, um, and he essentially is going to do some really cool stuff on the the viral, um, you know, the antiviral front of things. But he could not really do much until we had the the infectious dose assay. So now we've got things up and running. We're going to be sending him some cells. He's going to have our protocol of how to do it, and then he's going to be able to start playing with some of the antiviral compounds. Um, and then Pia and Susan Fogelson with Fishhead, um, they're doing work looking at some of the, in, in, in a, as a surrogate type of looking at infectivity, is looking at how long the genome of the virus kind of persists uh, in the environment by PCR. Um, so there's a lot of different cool stuff that's going on, and there's, you know, it's a, a lot that still needs to be done, but, you know, it is, um, it is incredibly challenging to find money in veterinary medicine to do work on exotic species like this. Sometimes if you're doing wildlife work, you can spin it the right way and you'll, you'll start tapping into to wildlife funds. But when it comes to captive exotic pets, um, they're just, it's, it's hard to get grant money. A lot of the agencies that you normally get grant money from, if you can't convince them why it's important to either human health or um, to wild species, they're not really interested in funding it. So while we all know how important this virus is to captive pet health and what it can, the economic implications it can have, the mental implications it can have for people that are losing large numbers of snakes, or have six snakes, 
it, it's challenging to find money. So it, that's why we're incredibly thankful for, um, you know, everyone who who has contributed in some way to these fundraisers because it's it it's very hard to find money out of this. And there's a lot of information that we have now. We would not have the infectious dose assay running if it weren't for the money raised through fundraisers like this. And I really hope that in about a year's time from this, now that we have that assay running, we're going to be able to give a full discussion on the appropriate disinfectants that can be used that are going to inactivate the virus instead of us looking at literature for other coronaviruses. We're going to be able to say, you know, based on what we see in the lab with ball python nido, these are the species that we should really be concerned, or at least these are the types of reptiles that we're concerned of spillover in. Um, we also know that, you know, it, I, I understand that we're, we're focusing right now on the, the serpentoviruses and the pipe. We also know there's a handful of other viruses out there that are closely related, and we're starting to, to really try to understand what's the extent of those other viruses and what species can they cause disease in. This is not going to be a snakes-only issue. Um, and since a lot of people have mixed collections that vary just between, that vary more than just between different snake species, you know, what inherent risks are there if you have a mixed collection that includes lizards and it includes snakes and it includes turtles, what's the risk of spillover between those different, more distant species? Definitely. <clears throat> and it's got to be frustrating to this be, you know, as much of a problem as it is. And because it's not directly affecting sort of the general public or, like you said, wild populations, everyone's going to be like, why would we throw money at that? Yeah. You know? That's kind of, I mean, that's part of the frustration with, um, you You kind of accept that when you go into the line of work that Steve and I are in. Um, and particularly from the veterinary side of things, um, it's, you, you, you have to accept it and you know you're going to be fighting against it and you just work to do everything you can with a little bits of money um, and hopefully make an impact in the long run. Well, hopefully once we get this Carpet Fest website sort of done and running, we can maybe do like a, a single annual auction event, you know, where we can have a ton of different stuff, uh, more than like what we just have for each Carpet Fest, but basically one giant auction to, to benefit. I'm going to talk to uh, some people about it and get this website done because the issue with facebook as you know you know doing auctions the zuckerberg is always watching he will uh yeah. he will strike <laughs> you down with with his technological vengeance yeah. and do like the the infinity ring snap and just make it all disappear <laughs> yeah <clears throat> uh, but as far as steve with with like what you've been doing with wild uh snakes and the virus what have you been finding with that uh so yeah, a lot of that we're still trying to, to fully figure out in terms of what what's going on. Um, so we're doing, yeah, kind of a, a number of different projects that that I think at this point it's we're still trying to to really kind of flesh out the picture that that we're we're looking at. Um, so I don't know how much I can talk at this point about it, but but that'll be a project we're wrapping up pretty soon, and, and hopefully we'll paint a pretty pretty interesting picture. But it's basically just looking for the virus in wild populations, more or less. Correct. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So gotcha. it, it, yeah. Wild snakes, both you know, colubrids and wild pythons when available, and and really just sort of expanding the range of determining what viruses are out there and which snakes, and you know, in which uh, really kind of bridging the gap between what we're seeing in captive populations and and some of the wild snakes. Hmm. Now, do you guys have? And, you know, it does. 
Oh, go ahead. Uh, there is precedent for, for circulation of nidoviruses in wild populations. So, um, you know, uh, two of the best examples are a die-off of uh, uh, Bellinger River snapping turtles in Australia that was caused by a, a nidovirus in the mm-hmm. wild population, um, as well as a shingleback skink nidovirus that, that caused uh, mortality in their population, too. So, so again, it's really kind of just trying to flesh out that, that gap between uh, the wild populations and, and our captive snakes. Gotcha. Gotcha. But as far as, uh, like, to me, the whole NIDO thing seemed kind of odd, especially in the green tree community, because it seems like out of nowhere, you had one person say, oh, I've got this going on in my collection. And then a few days later, you have someone else saying, oh, I've got it too. You know, they're in completely different parts of the country. And then you have other people saying, wait, I'm seeing it as well. Like, I don't necessarily, I'm not going to compare it necessarily to like Ebola, where it just sort of comes and goes, like comes in as fast as it, as it leaves but uh like is there any sort of explanation as to why it just sort of pops up in multiple places at once and then kind of just goes dormant again for a while i think so that's a that's a challenging question that i think has to do a lot there's a philosophical component to that question as well mm-hmm. um in that and we see this a lot with production animals you know outside of exotics or anything is that you know, a lot of times it, you, it takes that first person that's willing to say that they have a problem um, until others are more open to communicate about there being a problem in the collection. And so I think part of that is just someone being becoming comfortable with saying that they have an issue. Um, and then the other is that, you know, we, we do we have seen an uptick in cases over the past few years. And I, whether that's because it's things are being spread around, um, there's a, a higher number of, of collections that have it and things are inadvertently moved around. And so if you have a really low prevalence for a couple of years with, you know, a certain percentage of snakes that can be affected and shedding virus um, that are then moved around, you know, it's going to take a couple of years for it to reach kind of a critical number of affected collections and the collected affected collections to have enough snakes where you're then going to have conditions for development of clinical disease. We know that when we, t- and this has only been done now for to date, it's only been done for ball python nidovirus. When we exposed naive juvenile ball pythons to isolated virus, it took longer than was expected before they actually started to present with clinical disease. That doesn't mean that they weren't shedding virus. Right. So you can have animals being moved. So again, essentially it's the clinical disease, except if it's in a case like Ebola, where it's such a nasty virus and you see, it actually takes time. You need a certain threshold of snakes affected and a certain number of collections Mm -hmm. before you can start detecting these little blips on a background of, you know, there's, these are species that are, that are not the easiest to maintain in captivity. You need to have really specialized, you need to be experienced. You mean the average Joe on the street isn't going to be able to set up a green tree Python and have success. So a lot of those cases may have been in the background and people who weren't paying attention. And even with the best of scenarios, you're going to lose animals. So they're, they're, it's going to take time before it gets to a certain threshold for people to know what to be on the look for, look out for. And I think that that played a big role into the, you know, 
And now it's a little bit, you know, it's open. People know about serpentoviruses. They know it's, it's out there. People are more willing potentially to talk about it. Um, one of the big things I fight as a reptile veterinarian is the stigma with disease. If you have disease in your collection, it doesn't mean that you've done anything wrong. I mean, animal diseases happen. We, it, it, we talk about this with farmers all the time. You know, there are certain cow diseases. Or certain, it's not you, ha, you, just, you know it's there and you work with it to make sure it goes away um, or to, to maintain it at an appropriate level. In, in with, the, with the hobby of things, and this has been a long-held issue, is that, you know, there's a very negative stigma with disease. Um, and people can, if people say that they have a disease in their collection, that can have massive ramifications to their, their, their livelihood. Right. And, you know, because of that, there's, there's a lot of tight lipped things. And that's what I fight all the time. You, you are going to, I guarantee you, if you have a collection of reptiles, you're going to have disease, you're going to have parasites, you're going to have viruses. And it's how you maintain your collection how you appropriately quarantine animals to identify risks coming in and identify when you may have disease. That's the really important part. And mm -hmm. I think that, you know, right now in many parts of the snake hobby, there's more of an understanding then about these viruses and they happen, they're out there. It's, it's okay. And talking about it is a good thing and not a bad thing. Yeah. It's just, I thought I just found it odd that sort of out of nowhere, in green trees it was like a very big part of the conversation and there was almost like a panic going on where there was some finger pointing and some other things oh, of yeah. you know this is your fault this is because of you you know handful of people whatever which i didn't buy you know i don't i think it's i'm of the opinion that it's kind of been floating around for a while we just never had a name for it everyone just kind of wrote it off as oh it was a respiratory infection you know happens but yeah so the other thing too that might play into that is just is just sheer seasonality in general i mean um one of the patterns we're looking at is does the rate of uh positive snakes increase or decrease depending on the time of year i.e like in the middle of breeding season if these animals are worked up and stressed and um you know they're is their immune system dipping a little bit lower to the point where some of these viruses are, are able to be picked up at a higher rate um and so again you could also kind of have a count, compounding effect of of a people just starting to look for them and then you know coming to the conclusion that that they found them and then b also that uh you can kind of have these compounding effects depending on really any number of factors that that might uh change how likely you are to pick up some of these viruses especially if those animals are, are stressed mm -hmm. um yeah so one of the buzzwords that i have keyed in on now is like seasonal respiratory infection because that shouldn't shouldn't be a thing really right <laughs> um and a lot of times that that at least that i've seen some of the animals that you know it was like oh they would get a little bit stressed in the winter and maybe like you know have a little bit of drool for a month and then they go back to normal totally fine like nothing ever happened those were nido animals mm -hmm. uh so you know i i, I could really just be a number of, of different factors that, that a lot of times the things that we're able to shrug off because they don't maybe <clears throat> cause direct mortality of our animals that are at least obviously visible. Um, when you start to dig a little bit deeper and we have, when you, you have the appropriate tools to start to dig a little bit deeper, uh, like, you know, some of the diagnostic tests that are available now, 
uh, you can kind of start digging out some of these am- answers. So it might not be that that you know the answer has changed so much as just now we're finally asking the question. That makes sense. Um, as far as like for example, P and Cody, you know, they had their unfortunate NIDO event, uh, but they have animals that are completely asymptomatic since like day one and haven't had any issues. Are there any, is there any sort of explanation for that as to why, you know, with, with, with their green trees, you know, they lost a handful and then they have some that are positive, but they're rock solid as far as, you know, uh, behavior and eating and, you know, medically they're, they're fine. Is there any reason like we see that or is that kind of more of an individual animal basis sort of sort of question it's very much an individual animal basis we see that a lot with you know veterinary viruses that there are you know you always have animals that are immunosuppressed for some reason or another um and they're more likely to succumb to these things and then you have individuals that you know for whatever reason their immune response may be ever may be able to better deal with it and they or they have some unique aspect of them um, if you name a virus, um, we see that in natural populations. There's always going to be resistant individuals. Um, and it could be any number of things, but that's, that's likely what we're seeing. Um, and, you know, a, a lot is also probably attributed to the, the quality of husbandry that Cody and Pia have is that, you know, if they, they're taking really good care of these snakes, you're a lot more likely to have these resistant animals mm-hmm. um, that are able to stay infected the issue then becomes that, you know, that's essentially a persistent shedder. So those virus, those snakes, while they don't have clinical signs, are still shedding virus. They're still producing virus and releasing it into the environment. So you need to recognize that and then treat those animals in a way so that they're not at risk for the rest of your collection. So those are not the animals you want to take care of first in the day and then go to all your other animals. They're generally the animals that you want to do last. Or if you do take care of them first, take care of them first, and then you shower, you change your clothes, disinfect all your instruments, and then you go to the rest of the collection. Gotcha. Now, as far as if there were, like, I mean, is a vaccination type of thing a possibility with this? Like, will there one day, is there hopes that there's going to be some sort of veterinary level of, of vaccination that can be given that, that sort of solves the whole problem? Right. Um, I, it's, it's a very interesting question. Um, and Steve and I have talked about this before. I think if there's ever a virus in reptiles for which a vaccination would actually be feasible um, and one that, you know, it, it would not... Um, you know, there would be an, enough of a need for, this would probably be it. Reptile vaccination is an area where there has not been much research at all. Um, I've done a little bit with amphibian vaccination um, that we're still analyzing the data from, but it's, it's a challenge. Um, the other thing that we, we need to, to recognize is that we are dealing with some viruses that are substantially different from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you know, it's, I think a good example of this is, um, you know, two viruses that people probably know a lot about are canine parvovirus, which is an important thing that all of your dogs get vaccinated for. Right. And then there's a feline virus called feline panleukopenia virus. Um, and they're 
feline part, they're very closely related. I mean, essentially, if we talk between CPV and FPV, we're almost talking about the differences between ball python nidovirus and green tree python nidovirus. Mm-hmm. But you can't, there, there's that vaccine that's been made for feline panleukopenia can have very limited utility in a dog. So if we were, to, if you're to do a vaccine, it's probably not going to be simple enough to have a single vaccine because there's a wide variety of viral species out there. Um, and then we also, the reptile immune response is not one that we, I would say we understand much of at all in terms of basic science um, and one that there need, there would need to be a lot of, of investigation into. Um, vaccines generally result in the production of antibodies. And so not all viruses are easily inactivated by antibodies. Some of them are, some of them aren't. Um, and so that's why, you know, we, you need to know a lot about the virus and then you need to know a lot about the reptile immune response. So it is a very intriguing idea. Um, it's one that is probably, a, if, it, if it's successful or something that is investigated, one that's several years down the road, if not further. But I, I do think if there's ever a candidate for that, it is this virus. But do you, I mean, historically, do you think as far as the whole process of, of doing that, would it be any different as far as, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I hate to admit it, but I'm not too hip to, you know, her immune systems and how they work or differ from, you know, any other animals, but would it, if, we know, if it was the case, it, would it, it be as straightforward as, as just, Hey, we've made an, and you know, a vaccine that works with their immune system, even though it's different. I'm trying not to sound like a complete idiot. But. No, no, it's, and we know a lot, we know a lot about bird and bird vaccination works well. And so, you know, bird, we, birds would kind of be our model for this. The antibodies produced by, by reptiles, particularly snakes, are similar to those in birds. Um, and so I think it's, it's, it's very doable. And essentially, there are two main ways to produce a vaccine. Um, most vaccines out there, they're either killed vaccines or they're modified live vaccines. And in a killed vaccine, essentially what it is is concentrated protein from a virus that then you inject into a host and the host then makes antibodies to that particular protein. Um, The limitation with that is, is that we've spent a lot of time already talking about, we use the genetic sequence of these viruses to then determine how different they are from each other. That genetic sequence is coding the protein. And so this substantial difference between ball python nido and green tree python nido they may have very substantial protein differences that are then going to direct the formation of antibodies, so it may not be a cross-reactive antibody. Given that this is a respiratory virus, the more likely way of vaccination would be a live virus. And for live virus, you're actually, what you do is you select over time for a virus that is still able to infect cells, but doesn't kill cells or doesn't cause disease. Um, And so, these respiratory types of viruses, a lot of times the best way to do that is with a modified live virus. And that is something now that we have cell lines and something that we have viruses, that is something we could potentially do is select for generations away. When you continue to grow a virus in cell culture, what it essentially does is it stops killing the cells. Um, it loses its 
its ability, its virulence over time. And so what you do is you grow the virus in cells for hundreds of passages, 100 passages or so. And then the idea is that you would then take that virus, give it to a snake experimentally and hope that it doesn't then develop clinical nidovirus. And then if it doesn't, then you would then take those snakes exposed to the live virus and give them a, a pathogenic virus and see if they develop clinical disease enough or not. Um, the challenge with those viruses is right now our main method of detection is PCR. You know, we, we're screening for them. Those vaccinated snakes, we're going to detect nidovirus by PCR every time we swab them mm -hmm. because the vaccine virus is there. And so then you have to alter your diagnostic strategies, or essentially you're going to say, I'm going to vaccinate everyone, and then I'm never PCR testing my animals for nidovirus again. Um, so it gets, it, it gets, it, it, it's a very challenging question, which then is, has to be almost approached at the level of the individual hobbyist and or producer. Um, and they, this actually happens quite a bit with large um, dairy farms. They produce vaccines on the scale of the dairy farm and not necessarily for to be released to the entire market mm -hmm. is that you can then look let's you know, say, say one of you guys has, has a very large collection of snakes and we find that there's one important nidovirus that's going through that collection. Um, what we could do is we develop then an autogenous vaccine. So we would grow that virus, kill it make a vaccine out of that and then that would be a way to knock that vac that virus out of your collection if you have more than one virus in your collection that may not fix the problem um, but there there are ways of doing this that you know may be more straightforward than saying you know going to one of the big vaccine producers like fort dodge and eli, eli Lilly or something and say hey we want to make this veterinary vaccine and bring it to market is much more on the individual collection and say look we can grow the virus, find out what you're doing, and try, and we can make this and do it in your collection and see what happens. Hmm. Uh, with the, the with the turtles they f they found in Australia, what were were there symptoms that were unique to them compared to other animals that have infected with their own <clears throat> sort of variation? The turtle virus is an interesting one because the panel of tissues that were documented to be associated with the disease aren't the same that we see in snakes. Um, they were affecting um, tissues that we don't see affected in snakes. They were affecting the tissues around the eye. They were affecting the glands next to the eye. There, it was a lot, a lot more of a systemic distribution than the localized upper mm -hmm. respiratory distribution we see in snakes. Um, I do wonder, um, based on some of the things that I'm working on now with some other lizard things, if that that isn't a disease manifestation that couldn't occur in some of these other related viruses we see in other reptiles, but at least for as far as we see the serpentoviruses, they don't have that type of tropism. So they did, they presented with, with heavy eye involvement um, in those cases. Um, but again, I think the more that we learn and the more viruses we have for representation and the more analyses we do, we're going to find out that the turtle virus, even though it is a nidovirus and we group it in with the other viruses we know about, is probably distantly related to the serpentoviruses. And they, mm -hmm. have, they diverged evolutionarily a long time ago and through that then have different tissues that they like to infect and cause disease in. That's interesting. But they found it in colubrids, right? They found it in like corn snakes as well? 
in the Australia group? No, no, just in general. Back oh, to back in to like, general. Yeah, our we, side of the globe. We have we have detected nidoviruses in colubrids, but the, again, those viruses are are quite different than the mm -hmm. python viruses. And as far as uh, like cadavers that have succumbed to to these things, were the were the signs consistent in terms of like cause of death across groups? We, I personally, um, and I don't know of any outside of myself either, have not seen any clinical cases of colubrid nidovirus infection. So the animals that we have detected the virus in have not presented with clinical signs. I, I honestly, I haven't been able to do a full necropsy in one of those animals and look mm -hmm. for very subtle changes uh, in the tissues. But um, we have not, we have not yet seen mortality events associated with those viruses. So I can't actually make a, a good comment on that one. Okay. Man, what a mess, dude. Yeah. <laughs> just... yes, I remember when <laughs> more questions you know, than answers. It was Nidovirus was yep. one of those things like it when it came to the surface, it was like, like what's happening? Yeah, it's it was it what's was like the plague. Yeah, yeah. And everybody <laughs> lost their minds, you yeah. know, and it's like it's starting I feel like at this point we're starting to kinda settle down about it, I guess, in a way, and accept it. <laughs> accept that it's there. The and, panic has died down. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's definitely progressing to the point where every a lot more people are aware of it and they're starting to actually test and do the proper procedures to mm -hmm. make sure their collections are clean and keep this you know as down as we possibly can um we we i mean as a scientist um and a veterinarian we are operating in a very exciting time right now in terms of learning about the actual diseases that we see in animals um mm -hmm. You know, the time from when the first nidovirus cases were really detected and then we finally got publications out to describe what was causing them um, was relatively short. If we compare that to inclusion body disease of Boids, inclusion body disease of Boids was known about for a solid 30 years. Snakes were dying, all of these things. We could see the lesions. It was a solid 30 years before a true virus could be attributed to that and then diagnostic tests could be developed. Um, and we've actually have, again, with usually what happens with biology these investigations, now that we know about these reptorinaviruses that cause inclusion by disease, we have more questions than we have answers, but at the very least we have something we can test for. And it's something you can test for in an animal that may be healthy to determine is that virus there? Because you know, with, with inclusion body disease, reptorinaviruses, in boas, at least, I mean, they could have the virus for eight or 10 years before they develop clinical signs. Um, and so you'd have an animal in your collection for eight or 10 years shedding virus and then exposing all the other snakes to it. But if that virus spills over into some of your pythons, you get rapid neurologic disease that can kill them in four to six months. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're, it, it's, it is, we, we ask, we're at, we are bringing up a lot more questions that we have answers, but it actually gives us the power to develop these tests and offer these tests and offer these tests at prices that are not what they were 10 years ago. I mean, Steve was doing some next generation sequencing on some different nidovirus isolates a couple months ago. You know, we're able to do that in the lab for, you know, relatively much lower prices than five or six years ago. And all of this stuff is becoming more available. Um, the challenge is, is it's, it's go we're gonna start detecting a heck of a lot more things. Um, and nidovirus is going to be the big deal now, but 
in another five or six years, there's probably going to be something else. And has this been something that the veterinary field, like veterinarians, especially exotic vets, are sort of making sure they're they're being informed that that's happening? I am I am doing my best to get this out to um, the the exotic veterinary community. I think that there is a core group of diehard reptile veterinarians um, that know this disease and they know it well. They follow the literature. Um, I have presented the past two years, so I presented a full nidovirus talk um, at the um, Exotics Con, which is the conference for the Amphibian Reptile Association of Veterinarians, mm -hmm. Exotic Mammal and Avian Veterinarians. Um, and that's attended by people who are, you know, diehard reptile vets, but then also do full exotic vets. Um, so that information is out to them in that forum. And I also presented at the zoo veterinarians conference and the, uh, the pathologist conference, which is what I do in terms of pathology. And that's really important because if you submit a dead snake for necropsy, you have to make sure that the pathologist looking at it can recognize subtle changes in early nidovirus infections. Mm -hmm. um, so I am, I am doing my best to try and get this information out to all parties. I would say that it is definitely much better known in the veterinary community now than it was before. We receive a lot more submissions for nidovirus testing, um, which is a really good thing. So it's not, it's not something that is, um, you know, foreign to a lot of good veterinarians. But the challenge with everything is, you know, you have to find, especially for reptile species, you need to find a vet who's, who's confident and comfortable with the species that you work with. Um, and so, I definitely recommend anyone, anyone who's working with this, find a veterinarian in your area that does do reptile amphibian work. I know it's hard in some areas, um, but a lot of times if you're in an area where there isn't a great reptile amphibian vet, there's probably a vet who likes these species and would like to learn more, mm -hmm. and there are resources out there for those veterinarians. Um, but look and start with the best place to start is there's the is ARAV, A-R-A-V, which is the Association of Reptile and Amphibian Veterinarians, um, and that is those are that's a that has a list of veterinarians who subscribe to that list, um, and those are the ones that are really the most dedicated mm -hmm. often. Um, and you can search in your area for who the closest vet is for you that is ARAV, and they will tell you what species that they work with routinely. Yeah, because I remember when when this was being you know NIDO was sort of the the buzzword of the of the year, you know, I, I wondered, I was like, how many vets come, like, get animals brought to them that yeah. have, you know, the symptoms, and they look, and they look, and they can't figure out exactly what it is, and they're like, well, I guess it's just a respiratory infection, like, just how many yeah. were like, yeah. I don't know what it is, sorry, yeah. you know. Well, again, it, it, it's, it has to be a trickle-down effect, you have to, so you have to take the scientists um, that are doing the work, and the pathologists that are doing the work, such as myself, um, I need to be able to go and train other veterinarians. Um, and then those veterinarians then need to train the people they work with and particularly then the students. Um, so I work, I work very closely with our exotics interested students here at the University of Florida um, to make sure that they know about all of these emerging diseases. Um, because in general, in a lot of veterinary curriculums, exotics kind of is just a specialty thing that falls by the wayside. You don't need to know very much exotic veterinary medicine to be a boarded veterinarian. It's not the majority of what people do. Mm -hmm. um, but, you you know, the people that are interested in it, you know, we go out and we seek those things out. This is what we love. This is what we do. We find every opportunity to learn more about it.
Gotcha. Yeah, it's uh, like I said, the whole thing is just it's it's pretty overwhelming, even on the hobbyist side, where it's right. know, there's just this mountain of a of a problem, and no, it's kind of kind of sucks because no one sort of really knows exactly what to do about it. Um, and that and the time to get those answers is not yeah is not one that works at a fast pace. You know? we, we need answers and we needed them yesterday kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do they know as far as Serpento viruses, is there a disinfectant that you know of so far that seems to be effective? Is it like I use, I'm a big F10 guy, but and I know so, plenty of other people that use chlorhexidine. F10 is one that we have to look at. Um, chlorhex is one we have to look at. To be honest, the safest thing is always bleach. Um, and that's, that's challenging. There are fumes. You have to be careful mm-hmm. with the animals, but we, ble- there are very few things that survive bleach. And bleach of the appropriate dilution and the appropriate time contact is uh, it, that is the safest thing to make absolutely sure. Um, the challenge with things like F10, the challenge with things like Chlorhex, the challenge with things like the peroxide-based disinfectants, they don't get everything. There are certain classes of viruses that it just doesn't get well. Um, so until, and again, that's, we're planning on doing those studies and moving forward with those this year and getting results out fast. Mm-hmm. The best thing to do is to look for surrogate viruses or closer related viruses that have a similar structure. And that's where the coronaviruses are probably one of the best examples. Um, coronaviruses are in the same large family as these, similar structures. So we would anticipate that things that can disinfect for coronaviruses would also then be able to disinfect for serpentoviruses. And what exactly is it that disinfectants do to a virus? Is it like just kind of dissolve it, break it down? Like how does that So the benefit of both, actually. The benefit of serpentoviruses, remember I talked to you about that the virus have a protein shell then surrounded by that fatty membrane? Mm -hmm. Viruses that have a fatty membrane are much more sensitive to inactivation Mm -hmm. because in that fatty membrane are the proteins essential for binding to a cell and infecting a cell. But fatty membranes are very sensitive to things like certain disinfectants. Um, And essentially, if you can disrupt that fatty membrane, either punch holes in it or cause it to go to get away altogether, then that virus can't infect cells anymore. Um, So that's a good thing, at least with these viruses, we're dealing with an enveloped virus or one that has a fatty membrane. Mm -hmm. The ones without it are really tough to get rid of. Um, But so that's essentially what it's doing is it's it's breaking down the fatty membrane surrounding the virus or actually then breaking apart the pieces of protein that make that inner shell. And without those structures, the virus can't do what it's supposed to do. And do we know how long serpentoviruses can survive outside of a host? No, that's, again, that's one of the, the first things that we're looking at. I would say, you know, they, those viruses, they can't become desiccate, so they can't dry out. They need to stay wet. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a challenge, especially when we think about the husbandry of a lot of the species that were, <laughs> they're super right. susceptible. The, the chondros don't want to be dried out either. Mm-hmm. So you're maintaining a high relative humidity and keeping warm. Those are ideal conditions for a virus to survive. So it's, it, it, there's multiple things in play. What is the ambient relative humidity? What is the ambient temperature? Um, and, and we need to look into that. I would say, you know, just roughly, if the air is very dry, we're probably not looking at 
persistence for longer than a week or so. But in situations where the, the air is, is moist and it's warm, um, it could persist quite a bit large, longer. And we know, what we do know, at least from the studies we've done in animals and looking at the snakes that are infected are producing massive amounts of virus. Um, all of that mucus is loaded with viral particles. Um, and they're able to swallow, we find viral RNA present in their intestinal tract. Um, mm -hmm. And presumably that is going to be an infectious virus particles. So they, they are able to shed the virus and spread it when they're producing that mucus, and it's also going to be present in their feces. Um, and so and they're producing a lot of it. And like you talked about IBD sitting in animals for an extended period of time before they show symptoms, is that just a matter of the virus hitting the right numbers before it then starts causing a problem? <sighs> I, I The Reptorina virus is an IBD. That's It's a, an incredibly complicated story. Um, we don't actually know why some snakes with, that have the virus that cause IBD get disease and others don't and why it takes so long. Mm -hmm. There may be, for IBD, it may need multiple viruses to infect before you see clinical disease. Something else may happen, um, may need to happen. It's, a, it's, a, it's super, that is a, that's, a, that's a virus that's really complicated to understand. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, I don't think serpentoviruses are that complicated. Um, but we don't yet know. Hmm. And the mode of transport for those is most likely, it's not considered like it's you, like your snakes are mostly going to get it. If you go and touch one, that's, that's a carrier and then go and handle something else or something in the cage. So that's called fomite transmission. Yes. And yes, um, you, we, we, we expect the primary mode of trans of movement is from either touching or handling animals and then going and handling something else moving. If you're one of the big things is if you're feeding and you have animals that don't eat, don't take that food item and give it to another snake mm -hmm. because that's a huge potential source of contamination using instruments from, from tub to tub or enclosure to enclosure, depending on how you're, you're keeping the animals. The, we do think, and it's likely that, Serpentoviruses can also be spread by droplet transmission. And so we know that in some snakes that are producing that abundant mucus, they can spray the sides of their enclosure with mucus drops. Mm -hmm. It's possible then that you can have mucus drops move through the air and get from point A to point B. It's not true aerosolization, whereas the virus stays up in the air and easily goes everywhere. But it is, it is movement through the air over a much shorter distance. That makes sense. So I feel like that would be something that, you know, it may not affect animals in another room, but in the same rack <clears throat> system, right. it's a lot well, easier for rooms. a lot easier for it to pass through, you know, that, that way. Also the factor too, of like just the thousands of fruit flies that existed probably every oh, I never, yeah, collection that. there ever was, yeah. you know, that, that, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. That's Damn. uh because, I mean, mites mites can transfer it, too. Yeah, I would be very wary of mites, yeah. I mean, they suck, yeah, but now I they mean, suck even more, because now it's... Yeah. But as far Man. as disinfecting, feeding tongs, and, like, tools and stuff, what is your recommended method of going about doing that? Is it just putting everything in, like, a bucket and soaking it for an extended period of time, like, between animals, you know? Because I don't... I've got 
You've got how many snakes? I've got like forty ish. Yeah. I'm not gonna have forty sets of tongs, you know, right. one per cage. So what's what's sort of the best way to to make sure I'm not spreading anything if I have anything in my collection? Um, if you if you can rotate through a set of tongs and maybe have five or six tongs and you feed with one and then you put them into the container with bleach and you give it diluted bleach ten percent and a contact time of ten minutes, you're gonna be absolutely safe. Um, if you, you know, you could start seeing about putting, not that I wanted you to generate more plastic waste, but you could see about putting clear plastic covers on the tongs and throw those away Mm -hmm. in between, you know, even a little saran wrap or something at the end of your tongs that's holding and covering it. And that gets discarded between every single bin. Um, you know, that's going to make a lot of trash. I would prefer the bleach part. Um, and again, hopefully we'll be able to tell you. Does F10 work? Yes or no. Does Chlorhex work? Yes or no. Does, you know, we want to get those, those, those things done and be able to give you a diehard answer. But for right now, I think your safest bet is bleach. Cool. Yeah. Bleach is always one of those products that's, uh, it's always nerve wracking in a way using it. I've never loved using bleach to disinfect. I think everyone's kind of gun shy about using it. Yeah, but it's definitely, it's it's obvious. For a reason. I mean, it's, it does, it, it smells, um, it can be very irritant to airways and Mm -hmm. things like that. But if it's diluted properly and you're, you know, maintaining airflow, um, it, it's, I think it, that's the bulletproof option. Mm -hmm. And what is the preferred dilution? You want 10% bleach. Okay. To, any, to any amount of water. Well, no. So, you're, so well, like you... Like per ratio to whatever. Yeah. Water so what using. you want to do is your standard over-the-counter bleach. Um, I forget what concentration it is in the actual Clorox bottle or whatever. Um, but if you do a ten, one part of that to nine parts water, so you're essentially diluting that 10%. That should be that should be sufficient, um, and yeah, you don't more. The higher it goes, the stronger the chemicals are going to, you know, the the fumes are going to be yeah. from it. So, and, and it- obviously, whenever you're working with bleach, absolutely do not mix bleach and ammonia containing compounds because that's you know then you produce chlorine gas and then you're in big trouble. And then you're in the trenches in World War One. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> creating your homemade mustard gas. <laughs> That stuff's nasty, dude. I remember reading books about it in school. We were going over World War One. That stuff was yeah. rough. Mm-hmm. Uh, but does bleach do the same thing that like regular disinfectants do to a virus? They, I mean, they're all acting in in different ways. Um, but yeah, so the bleach essentially the hypochlorite ions in bleach are extremely reactive, and they react with everything. And that reaction then is what causes the the viruses to degrade and lose their membrane um same thing so so the it's the peroxide based disinfectants work because peroxide is extremely reactive and and then those peroxide and uh ions will then interact with things and cause them to fall apart Mm -hmm. the good thing about the peroxide disinfectants is essentially the end product of the peroxide reactions is water and oxygen. Right. So you don't have any, but we do know that not all viruses are susceptible to peroxide disinfectants. Usually the ones that aren't are the viruses that do not have that fatty membrane around them. Mm-hmm. With these viruses having that fatty membrane, I fully assume, believe that those peroxide-based disinfectants would work incredibly well. But we need to prove that right. before 
Gotcha. Well, I believe I am out of amateur rookie questions that you guys probably get all the time. <laughs> Do you have it? Uh, no, I think you about covered anything yeah. that I had that I had in my head. Because we're, I mean, we're right at an hour and a half, and I think we covered everything else that I wrote down at least to a degree that I'm happy with. Um, if anyone wants to kind of follow what y'all are doing, is there somewhere they can go to do that? Is there so like a right mailing now, list we, or something? We don't have a mailing list. Um, you know, I we don't maybe some. I've got Steve doing a lot of work in the lab, but maybe coming up with a lab web page that talks a little bit about what we're doing might be a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But right now, it's it's just kind of very informal and and just publications and that sort of thing. Um, but you know, I I'm happy to do these types of things. I do like um, you know I like talking about this with hobbyists. I mean, I st- before I was a veterinarian, I was a herper. Um, and so I, I've had reptiles as pets my entire life. So, you know, I, I did, I see things from the side of the hobbyist. Yeah. Um, and, um, so yeah, I reach out. I, you can find my email on my faculty webpage. Um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to usually answer questions and I'm always here to help in, in disease things. Um, and again, I just, I, I really want to thank everyone. I, it, Everything you, I mean, you're bidding on auctions, so you're getting, a, you're bidding on something that's going to be awesome and fun for you to have anyway. But the the money raised in these really is extremely helpful. Um, it allows it allows us to do things that otherwise are very limiting. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times, people who do the work, such that Steve and I do, we kind of have to halfway sell out and spend a bunch of our time then doing other projects that are important for humans or things like that. Um, And I, I want to focus all of my efforts on reptiles and amphibians and, and the generate, the funds generated by this really help allow me to do that. Um, So I thank everyone. Uh Oh, hold on a second. Crap. Sorry about that. Dropped out there. Nope. I'm merging it back. All right. Steve dropped out, but we're back. Okay. Sorry about that. Are you, are you keeping anything right now as far as herbs uh, at home? Right. I've got, I, I've moved around so much in the past few years that I had to really pare back my collection. Right now I have one terrarium with glass frogs and, and oh, cool. Phyllobates vitatis. And then I have another with uh, dwarf geckos and a couple of uh, Nicaraguan anoles for right now. Do you ever see your vitatis? I, I don't see them incredibly often. Um, but I just, they were one of my first dart frogs and I was in dart frogs for forever, I did, but they, you always hear them. That's the yeah, I, I have a group of three and I hear them all the time, but I, I very yeah. rarely see them, yeah. but they're reproducing like crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't pull, I don't pull eggs. There's a large water because the, the glass frogs that they're in the tank with, they, their egg, their tadpoles just drop in the water. So, mm-hmm. but that, that, that water area is filled with nothing but the tadpoles. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> they just won't stop. It's like yeah. every week. I'm they like, will what? not stop. Oh. Yeah. That's wild. But yeah. I mean, Steve, we're going to have to get you on for another show. Cause you've got a whole episodes worth of, of other stuff that you, you got that. Yeah. No, I've, I've, about. I, I've got a lot of, had a, had a quite a varied career in all all the various reptile stuff. Definitely, yeah, man. And, I, I 
I'm not gonna lie, man. Back when, uh, back when I first started getting to, you know, private keeping and stuff like that, you know, obviously very small time, only with a couple of animals. But you were one of the people I watched a lot on, uh, on YouTube, and it's just, it's just kind of funny. <laughs> so many years later, it's, you know, we're having y'all on our podcast, and it's just, I don't know, it's weird. No, it, it does crack me up how, how many people apparently watched those videos way, way back in the day. Because I, yeah, I still have people reach out to me and go, "Oh man, I used to watch your videos like a decade ago." <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it's yeah, it's uh, it's nuts, man. But yeah, well, we're at an hour and a half. Um, so, Steve, where can people follow you? Um, I really don't. I don't post stuff available anymore. Right now, I just have kind of a hobbyist collection. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really. I mean, I post some stuff on my Instagram at, at uh, Reptilis, um, but yeah, I really, I'm not, I'm not super active really anywhere at this point. It's, it's been, you know, life's been grad school and, and really just the handful of stuff I have is, is I say handful, it, you know, it, it, there's no such thing as a handful of <laughs> snakes, but, um, you know, it's mostly just for fun. So I still post a fair bit of kind of varied species and, and um, you know, kind of little tidbits on how i maintain my collection at least as it relates to niovirus so um yeah my instagram probably the best place to to kind of keep in tune with that but that being said you know i I, again don't rarely post stuff on there right maybe once a month or something like that so cool well we definitely appreciate you all coming on i know Um, a lot of a lot of other people will appreciate it too mm -hmm. this is you know this i know this is going to be a popular episode i tried to ask all the questions i think yeah. other people would want to know so. yeah this is i think this will be a real popular one amongst all of our morelia heads and you know everybody else who's who's into this so we re- definitely really appreciate all the info and y'all taking the time out of your busy schedules to join us today yeah absolutely and we'll yep, see you, you next much. we'll see you next month right y'all yeah both y'all be both be at carpets <clears throat> yep i'm planning on being yep. there awesome awesome yeah well we'll definitely see you then Great. Sounds good. Awesome. Thanks, All right. guys. Take care, y'all. Thank you. Take care. Man, like, I don't know about you, but Oof. I've I've had a very big interest in viruses and stuff like that for a while. I just, I find yeah. the whole concept of those things just fascinating. Like, something you can't see it's, it's, gets in your system and just rewrites yeah. your freaking genes like, and just causes all, like, it's, it's, it's like a bug in the system yeah. that just completely jacks everything up it's fascinating but it's also horrifying in the same token like it's this could you know this has the potential to wipe out an entire collection and it has has. you know it's 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 scary like yeah super super interesting Mm -hmm. and it made for an awesome episode but man it's 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 scary feel for anybody in the hobby of not just morelia people Mm -hmm. it's obviously how many people are in the ball pythons these days You know, it's like this it doesn't just affect the Morelia corner of the hobby, even though when it first came out, that seemed to really be the it, yeah, well, the kicker, especially you know, with you, right? It but up in green trees and when it popped up in green trees, like when that happened, it was like that the the apocalypse, man. Well, that was you the know? second time, and, like the first time it popped up in like I want to say 07, yeah, and everyone was kind of like, wow, that's weird, and then it kind of disappeared for a while, right? Like no one had any more issues, at least that we know of, and then. It was like what 2018 that sort of the whole fiasco sort of came about right. with it again, and and everybody's got a theory on it, man. You know, I yeah, I won't I won't name names, but there's people opinion. out there who think that it's it resides in all 
you know all animals and it's just a matter of if it shows its ugly head you yeah. know but I mean, uh, like i said we have way more questions than we have answers and thanks to things like the carpet fest auction and everything else you yeah know. so and it'd everybody be nice to, to do a once yeah. a year like a big auction on the website yeah, like hey this is going towards nido stuff you know, let's make it happen. You make know, it a bigger, bigger auction. It, that's why you know, I think this episode was important, you know, for everybody bidding on the auction stuff, mm-hmm. man. It's like, this really shows you what all that money is going towards and how much good it's going to do, you know, for, for everybody, you know, in the long run. And the fact that we're, you know, carpet fest is making such way with, you know, mm-hmm. raising funds for all this, like it's it's huge, you know. And you know, yeah. you're Rob, you know, uh, Dr. Rob said it himself, he's you know, couldn't thank everybody enough mm-hmm. for you know, all the all the bidding and donations that we've made. And I mean, it you know, sucks, we're but making an impact. Like, science is more concerned about our species and the species of wild populations, which I understand, right? Like, in the captive sector, they're like, that doesn't have anything to really that doesn't really affect us in the global environment you know it's to not an ex- really that to an big extent of an right for the large right. majority of ca- obviously captive breeding has played a role in keeping populations from going extinct in some cases you know that you know they but that's a very fish to fries, exactly no that's what i mean like for the hot the just large majority of the hobby does not you know affect that and you know obviously before a hobbyist standpoint we have to look at you know the world and keeping a species alive it's very hard for them to justify throwing money and something right. like that and i understand i get yeah. it but it is awesome that everyone comes together everyone uh, yeah. like sort of unified front like you know, donate it, money it, donate animals auction stuff it's also that. awesome that we can do this in such a <laughs> niche community man yeah. you know like it, it obviously the reptile hobby is growing every day but the fact that we can get so many people to come together and make this happen and raise you know all this money for such an awesome thing yeah, it's, it like, it's what, 24, fantastic thousand raised last year yeah it was i think a stupid amount I mean, we're already almost half that so yeah i don't know i kind of i'm hoping we do better this year i think we will um, right, but I think it'd be nice if we had just one big annual auction on the website, so we don't have to worry about Facebook and right. stuff. And then that takes pressure off all the carpet fests to get the auction things going. Right, like that would you know because the auction is one of the most f- stressful if you're an organizer or planner, which you I are. It's <laughs> one of the most stressful parts of right. the whole thing and coordinating it, and you know you're literally going to different people and asking them to cough up something for free more or less and right you know some people are are more uh what's the word apt yeah like some people are like yeah sure and then some people think you know you gotta take a little bit of hounding i don't do the hounding no um i'm of the opinion like ask once ask twice if you don't get an answer at that point clearly they're not interested leave it be and the but the the awesome thing is like look how many people donated yeah. you know like there's people there's people with two to five hundred dollar vouchers in there man mm-hmm. like that's francis that's uh, big time Gatton, that's awesome who does condros he donated like, he like his voucher was originally 500 that thing's almost a thousand dollars in bids right now wow so he's upping it to a thousand. Oh my gosh yeah wow dude that's incredible and, i mean if i had animals and stuff to donate i'd, yeah. I'd throw up animals in a heartbeat like yeah 
I don't have for a problem sure. doing that. No, I man, just I did, I wanted to put up a voucher, but I was like, I don't know when I'm actually going to have anything. And for that sale, was my so. big thing. Like, if I was more seasoned with you know so having just do shirts, and having the stuff. exactly, and that's why we went that route. Definitely in the future when we're producing more, but and, it's something. Yeah, you know? no, is and that's and that's the thing is like you don't have to donate you know a thousand dollar voucher. It doesn't have to be a anything, super expensive animal. Yeah, you know, we like us, we we didn't donate a lot, but we donated what we could. Mm-hmm. You know, because it was it, we had a I think double the amount of sponsors this year than we had last year too, yeah, which wow. is also cool because yeah, that awesome. that takes a. I mean, I know last year like renting out chairs and the tents and the tables and stuff was kind of a headache because it was like we had to scrounge up money to to make right. that happen because that's for whatever reason not that cheap. I don't know why, um, but I don't think there's going to be a problem this year, and yeah. we're saving ourselves a bunch of nightmare with the food by having the food truck. So we are doing the food truck. There is going to be a food truck, okay. which is going to be I, that was like the first thing I suggested to Pia because she was like, that was sort of the most frustrating part for her last year with yeah, organizing was like food because then there was a bunch of food left over, no one took it with them, whatever. So I was like, why don't we just get it catered? Yeah. What we have is what we have, you know, because some people just didn't eat last year and that's fine. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of food. You know, BYOB, uh, BYOC, bring your own scars. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> it's like, let's just get or a catered. Just bring one for everybody. Let's just do a food truck. Let's just keep it simple. Yeah. You know, if people want to eat, then they can go eat. They know, they're not going to be yeah. there all night, obviously, but right. it's just, it's a much easier, like hands clean yeah. option. Don't have to worry about cleanup. Don't have to worry about setup. Just it takes pressure off a lot of people. That's right. Cause that's what I'm all about is making this whole thing and that's just what, as effective, and, but easier on everybody. And that's what should the carpet fest should be about. It shouldn't be stressful. It should be relaxing for everybody and uh, for everybody to have a good time. So. And I'm sure if people are hungry, there's a Domino's or something they could order pizza from later at night. We, if they we know where Pia, Pia and Cody live. I doubt you're going to get a Domino's out there. They're not that far from civilization. <laughs> I doubt they have Domino's delivery. Um, they have something, too. dude. Domino's are like the Dollar Generals of pizza places. Yeah, but they also have a radius for delivery. Whatever. But Regardless. Anyways. This is episode 66. Thank you to Steve Snakesuary and his Venom Sauces. You can actually go bid yes. on a set of Venom Sauces. Yeah, so go do that. Try them on out. On the Southeast Carpet Auction. And, uh, let your taste buds. Southeast Carpet Fest Auction. Let your taste buds jump with excitement. Mace those suckers. Mm, just... Dab them all up. If you want to check out the video that Justin and I did, you can check that out on our YouTube page of us trying them all. Um, so yeah, it'll go to a good cause. It goes to support his snakesuary. And if you do the auction item, it goes to Serpentovirus mm, research. Yes, I was about to say it. <laughs> Serpentovirus. Serpento. I don't know. Which I like Nidovirus. Just sounds, sounds so like much more menacing. Serpent. I don't know, Serpento. It's a like serpent. Serpento. It's like, yeah, it's a snake virus. But Nidovirus, it's like, oh, what's that? <laughs> it's like the Undertaker. Like, is he alive? Is he dead? Mm-hmm. Like, wrestling. Is it Nido? Yeah. Who is he? Who is this mystery man? Mystery virus. I bet you all have been hearing my nose whistle the entire time. <laughs> Every week. That's every week, dude. Is it? That's, yes. Dude, my nose is <laughs> I can always, hear your nose all the it's time. Probably all the cigars. My nose is just constantly. Yeah. Stopped up because I retrohale all the time. Yeah. So my nose is like, what are you doing to me? I can't breathe. <laughs> Anyways, follow me at Palmetto Coast Exotics. Follow me at JLB Morelia. Uh, we'll see y'all later this week because yeah. we're back on schedule for Thursdays. Yep. I assume. 
Yeah. I mean, what time's your football game today? 6.40. Go, Pat, go, buddy. Playing? San Francisco. Ooh. This is the game. This is for the Super Bowl. Who do you? Is it? Yeah. Whoever wins this game goes to the Super Bowl. But then Kansas City plays Tennessee? Yeah. When's that happening? Uh, is that tonight, too? I, I think that's earlier. I can't remember. Oh, I think that'll that, be interesting. That actually might be happening soon. I'm not even a football guy, but, dude, watching yeah. Houston and that Kansas City game was that out was, of oh control. My God. I was watching that at work, like... Patrick Mahomes is a monster. Wow. I thought it was so funny that uh, the Chiefs, the Chiefs like stadium, they had or the owners had to apologize to all the fans because they ran out of fireworks for touchdowns. <laughs> Y'all are just gonna have to like, cheer wow. like normal. Yeah, Sorry. just get loud. <laughs> but go Pat, go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Football, sports. <laughs> this oh. isn't. This is gonna be out. This is, people, most people are gonna listen to this after the game. So. No, just know if Green Bay loses tonight, I'm going to be very sad. I'm sure it Don't will be absolutely me. devastating. Yeah. Football, sports. Yeah. Ah. Anyways, y'all have a good night. I'll see you later. <laughs>